Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Yeah, yeah, you, you <laughs> we're laughing because you guys missed the uh, the pre-opening comment. It was a good one. It's maybe yeah, it might have a bit of a moment. Uh, welcome back said. to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As always, you got Sean and Mike here with you. And today we're going to kind of wrap up our series on hypothermia. Uh, today's topic is going to be active versus passive rewarming. And uh, Mike started us off on hypothermia, so he's going to start us off on this discussion as well. I'm here for you. So look. Here's the gist. We've talked about what is hypothermia. We've talked about how some of the best methods to mitigate hypothermia or treat hypothermia. But now we got to talk about the framework for the two primary methods that are talked about in school and the different techniques associated with them. So we're going to be talking about active versus passive rewarming. And there is some confusion between them. So we felt like spending a little time, at least three to five minutes on a podcast, talking about the differences was important to help folks really truly up their game in the wilderness treatment dance. So I do want to mention right out of the gate that regardless what you're doing, whether you're going to enact active warming or passive rewarming, if they continue to get colder or they are because of environmental factors like being wet, not having any insulating layers, et cetera, et cetera, you can do all the warming you want, buddy. If they are actively losing heat, you're going to eventually lose the battle. So like G.I. Joe taught us, right? Knowing is half the battle. Please remember you have to prevent further heat loss before you start going down the fancy pants road of any BLS or ALS interventions, whatever the case may be. What this means is if they are laying in a snow covered, that's not a good analogy. If they're laying in a creek bed and they're all wet, like you can do all the warming you want. You got to get them dry first. <laughs> if they're laying half naked on a cold rock in 32 degree weather, you got to get them up off the rock before anything else is going to do any good. So let's break down what these actually mean. This will be a refresher for those of you four listeners that have been to EMT school. Passive rewarming is, uh, involves removing wet clothing and applying dry layers and then additional insulation. In wilderness classes like Wolfer or even basic survival classes, they're going to talk about wrapping people in blankets, wrapping them in sleeping bags. Ideally, you want to do this in an environment that is warmer than the ambient temperature, but if you ain't got one, you ain't got one. Ultimately, to recover core body temperature heat or to increase the core body temperature, all of these techniques require that the patient is actually generating heat. And what we're actually doing with all of these layers, the blankets, the sleeping bags, the whatever the case may be, we're trying to trap as much heat as possible, as opposed to letting it wander off into the environment. How's that for a turn? I was going to say evaporate, but that's not really true. <laughs> you don't want to radiate it off into the environment. You want to yeah, trap yeah, yeah. as much heat as possible. And as they are generating the heat, the more you can trap, the less work, so to speak, the body is going through. And ultimately, you're going to get ahead of that curve. You're going to get ahead of the bell curve. You're going to be generating more heat than you're losing. And ultimately, the core temperature of the patient will come up. But none of this in a passive environment includes introducing any heat. This is just simply optimizing the opportunity to capture as much heat that is generated by the patient as possible. And then if you listen to the previous podcast, optimizing the patient's opportunity to produce their own heat. Is that about sum it up, Sean? I think so. Yeah. Like the big one, it's passive. You're, you're not doing anything actively to support them. 
right? It's all on the patient to generate their own heat. And I think Mike brought up a good one is once you get them that dry and you get them insulated and they're able to make their own heat, all that extra insulation is there yet to just build that heat so that their need to expend a lot of additional energy to make heat starts to go down and it becomes less strain on their body. And then it's just kind of like one of those self-feeding pieces. Like once your body starts to warm itself to a sustainable level, then the shivering can slow down. The body heat continues to climb because then the body's able to make better use of the energy stores it has remaining. Yeah. So with that, we're going to talk about a little bit of active rewarming. So this would obviously be the direct opposite of passive. So this is going to be active external rewarming, right? Application of heat directly to the skin slash, well, not necessarily the skin, right? But directly to our patients. Mm -hmm. So a few field examples, putting bottles of hot water, heating packs, you know, like the little hand warmers, et cetera. They have the big ones, they have little ones. Putting those on and around your patient, depending on your situation, having your patient sitting there in front of a fire, something that's actively providing heat to the patient. It's not just them trying to make their own heat. And of course, everybody's favorite, the classic body-to-body contact. Yeah, boy. Uh, This is uh, maybe at the end of this, if Mike reminds me, I've got a great story of when uh, we had to do this once for a young guy. And uh, (laughs) it made for a really, really humorous event. But uh, turned out good. Sounds really awkward. I'll be sure to remind you. Yeah, yeah, you'll have to because this is a good story, right? So All right. these methods generally only effective in the presence of intact circulation, right? So you got to have blood that can return from the periphery back into the core. So if they're so hypothermic that all of their peripheral blood flow has been shunted to the core, they're not going to be able to move any of that heat where it needs to go. It's got to be able to circulate throughout the body to begin to warm them back up. So this is where if you have your severely hypothermic patients, do what you can, but evacuation is the key with these folks. This is really going to be more helpful for those mild to, I'd say probably mid-level moderate hypothermic patients. Once you get beyond that and circulation starts to slow, you've got some other issues you've got to worry about, right? And as I briefly touched on before, a bit of caution, placing hot water bottles, especially if you've jumped literally boiling water right into the Nalgene, and then you're going to place it in your, around your patient to start warming them. You got to watch so that you're not going to burn them, yeah. right? So you got to think about put it in somebody a sock. Yeah, put the bottle in a sock, or don't have your patient necessarily naked if you've got them down to strip down. Like maybe they're in some long johns or something. Maybe you might need another small layer between the patient and that bottle. But you got to remember that they are going to be still vasoconstricted, even if it's just at the surface capillary level, and they're not necessarily going to notice how hot that is until you've started <laughs> causing damage, right? So you don't want direct skin on, on heat source usually with these things. You want some sort of layer between the patient and the heating element. It's been an old school technique used for a long time to help rewarm people, right? Warm water bottles in a sleeping bag. Heck, when I was a yep. kid and I was learning to camp in the woods, right? You heat up a water bottle before you and throw it in the, the foot box of your sleeping yeah. bag before you went to bed. And then yep. you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, dude, my feet are cold because there's this cold as a water bottle in here. So right? <laughs> if you're using the water bottle technique, you do have to kind of monitor them. They're not a perpetual source of heat. That is a very, very good point, right? So surgically, if you were doing gastric lavage and we were dumping hot water into somebody's ass, abdomen or something like that, they've got to cycle that water out relatively quickly, quickly. because it yeah. cools down quickly and they've got to replace it with warm water again. Otherwise, that cold water starts sucking heat away again. So yeah, yeah. if you're doing the, the water bottles, you've got to m- monitor those very regularly. And as soon as they're starting to cool down even a little bit, it's like, okay, you've got to pull those because as soon as they are cooler than the body, 
that whole thermogenic shift, just like you know, with your cells and high to low concentration shifts, it's what's going to happen, right? Conduction, yep. convection. Remember our heat loss principles. So if I've got conduction, cold object next to warm object, the warm air or warm energy is going to go to the cold thing. So you got to get those out ahead of the thing and replace them with yep. another set of fresh warm bottles. And I mean, fundamentally, we're shooting for, for 98 degrees, right? Like yeah. 90 degree water feels pretty warm, right? If yeah. it's lukewarm and ambient temperature, that is definitely cooler than the core temperature we're shooting for with our patient. So yeah, exactly. just keep an eye on it, right? Yeah. And uh, the chemical heat packs, they don't have that problem necessarily. It's just once they're done, they're done. And if you've got more, you should replace the ones that have expended themselves. That's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to touch on this just because it kind of falls in between both of these things, right? So the hypothermia wrap. Everybody's heard about the hypothermia wrap, the human burrito, whatever you want to call it, right? And if you don't know what one is, just real briefly, basically you're going to put a tarp or some sort of windproof, waterproof barrier down on the ground first. You're going to usually then put like a sleeping pad down and then your patient wrapped up in several insulating layers. And then you're going to bundle them up with the rest of the way with that tarp, et cetera. And the tarp is going to essentially serve as a vapor barrier with the rest of the insulation to prevent any heat from escaping. That you're trying to keep it all trapped, like Mike mentioned, back in with your patient. Uh, and it also is going to provide some elemental protection if you're out in the woods still and it might be raining, snowing, et cetera. So where does that thing fall? Is it active or is it passive? Well, are you using active heating elements within it? If it is, you're saying the answer to that is yes, then it's an active method. And if it's not, it's just simply the hypothermia wrap, then it's passive. So just remember that, that just because you've put them in the great hypothermia wrap, if they're not able to generate their own body heat, as we talked about before in passive, then you're not doing them a whole lot of good. Okay? They have to be able to generate body heat if you're not going to have any active elements associated with it. There are some amazing products that are out there to help with this. I'm not even going to go into the bunch of the various names, but essentially they are purpose-designed hypothermia elements. Some are full kits, like mm-hmm. the hypothermia wrap, and some are just elements of it, like torso-length sections of essentially the same type of mylar sheeting that have heating chemical heating pack elements within them. Some of these, the entire thing heats up at once. Some of them you can activate one, two, three elements at a time, depending on the manufacturer and what's out there. Last year, Mike and I are huge fans of these products because they really help get that heat generated for those patients. And yeah. we both went through the entire supply our agency had. Oops, some folks, my bad. Some folks were a little grumpy with us because we used them, but it's like, well, we used yeah. them. That's, isn't that why you yeah. buy them? Is to use them on patients who need them, right? Yep. So we had them, we used them. And yeah, you know, a couple of them got wrapped up with patients for their carryouts just because help generate more heat. And I think normally when we do that on those carryouts, we'll pop one or two cells, usually two, sometimes a third one. Two. Most of them have like, most have like nine little cells and we'll pop at least two, get some heat going. When those start to feel like they're died down, we'll pop the next two, et cetera. So you cool. keep a bit of heat going constantly for as long as you can with them. And then because they're basically a, a plastic sort of thing, they also function as another vapor barrier against your vapor barrier. So things like that are excellent. The military's gone and done a lot of research and development in some of these purpose-built hypothermia wraps. Uh, and they use them for all kinds of things, not just cold weather hypothermia, but traumas, even in semi-warm weather environments, right? And if you're not familiar with trauma and the lethal triad of death, then... Yeah, turns out that, that being be cold is bad. Episode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, Mike, um, what are your thoughts on uh, space blankets? They're, they're, well, they're the greatest I mean, thing ever, right? They look cool. So here's my thoughts on space blankets. A few thoughts. 
I don't understand why if I ran a marathon, that is better than a regular blanket or a jacket. But for some reason, if I'm in my running shorts and my, my man bikini or my, uh, my running attire, and after my run, I want to wrap myself in a Mylar blanket as opposed to, you know, like a regular blanket or put on a jacket or maybe wear a hat. But for whatever reason, they're really great for marathon runners. But in all seriousness, they work, but they are not an effective layer on their own. I have a love-hate relationship with Mylar space blankets. I hate the fact that they're basically an opportunity for you to tear things that then will not be any use. <laughs> but they are, they are effective. The, the concept you have to understand here is that they're a radiating layer. They're not an insulating layer. So There you go. The Mylar will produce an increase in the... Oh, let me rephrase that. The Mylar sheeting that are... You know, the thin Mylar standard camping survival type blankets need to be wrapped as close to the patient's skin as possible or near skin, right? Over bulkier, or they need to be under bulkier layers that are there to trap heat. And their purpose is to radiate the heat that is being generated back to the patient. But they don't protect against convection or conduction or anything else. They're just Mylar. So if you wrap yourself in a Mylar blanket and sit down on a rock, you're still going to lose heat because it turns out that uh, mylar sheeting is not very good at insulating you from either the wind or the rock. But they do work. I mean, I don't want to say they don't work. If somebody asked me what is the best use of a mylar blanket, my response would be on the other side of the fire that I built to warm the patient after I wrapped them up in a bunch of blankets and sat them down on the ground. And I would use the mylar blankets to radiate the heat back in the direction of the patient as opposed to letting the heat I'm trying to trap as much heat as I can, uh, which will ultimately result in me melting mylar blankets because eventually that's what always <laughs> happens if you get them too close to a fire. You're much better off buying products. If you have the funding, these uh, purpose-built hypothermia wraps Sean was just talking about, a lot of those have mylar insulation built into them. Yep. That's much more effective than just having a mylar blanket. But man, the market for selling little pocket blankets to save your life, like it's out there. They also make great signaling devices for aircraft. But it is not my primary go-to when it comes to, oh my gosh, this guy might be hypothermic. Let's get a Mylar blanket on him. No, I'm going to dry them, start producing heat, put the calories in them, help them shiver, those sorts of things. Yeah. How's that for a jacked up opinion? I personally believe you you hit the key points, right? So the reason we threw this in there is a lot of people, especially folks not on the medical side, average lay people, hunters, hikers, like they grab that space blanket they're small, they're lightweight, they're relatively cheap. Actually, they're really, in the grand scheme of things, very cheap. They toss them in their pack, their first aid kit, and it's a great piece of kit to have, right? Mike and I, I'm sure, have at least one in our kits just because it's, again, if you're making that hypothermia wrap, that can be part of your vapor barrier, right? It can be an excellent add-on to your thing. But the thing you need to remember is, as Mike so eloquently put it, those Mylar space blankets are not the end-all, be-all. They are not going to fix the hypothermia. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uses. You can help improvise some shelter with them, use them as a reflective layer for a fire. If you have that patient and they've got some good layers on, I have had good success with, as Mike said, under the bulky layer. Right. So it's like, let's stuff this in around the backside of your jacket, kind of up over around your shoulder or neck and stuff it all around the front underneath that puffier down jacket or fleece jacket, Mm -hmm. whatever you've got. Kind of let that mylar do that reflective heat thing it does also serve as that vapor barrier. And that actually works pretty well. You can use them, uh, we'll call it those warmer months. Hey, here you go, toss this around your shoulders. It'll help some. It'll provide a little bit of wind protection. Like, But a mylar blanket against bare skin in the wind is not going to be as effective as 
mylar against a fleece jacket right the wind right? right you need that little bit of insulation between the two so they're good I can't they're think who makes them it's an orange box i can see the packaging but for the weight in the the space there's a company that makes a a tarp that has a mylar side to it. It's orange on one side. It's got the mylar sheeting on the other side, but they're much more durable and yeah. not that much bigger or heavier. That's just my go-to. Like if I had to choose what's going in my pack, it's those. It's not, it's not mylar blankets. Yeah. So, and like Mike said, not that we're going to get into a lot of name brand stuff, but what he was referring to, I believe is probably the SOL or survive outdoors longer. Yeah, brand. that's it. And their space blankets, even their basic space blanket, they don't have that loud, super crinkly sound that the more common space banklets have. They are a little more expensive, but I've had some that I've used and reused for dozens of wilderness first aid classes, right? That mm-hmm. if you're careful and you can refold them, you're never getting it back in the original packaging, but you can get them folded back up and compressed back to a reasonable size pretty easily and you reuse them. Just the material is a little thicker, a little heavier, and they're very effective. And they do, they make a, an emergency shelter version, which has got grommets on it and stuff. Still not super thick or heavy, so it's a good emergency shelter piece that can double as your vapor barrier or something else if needed, right? So that's a good piece of kit to have. So we're not, don't get us wrong, we're not saying that the basic, you know, 50 cent standard Mylar space blanket is a terrible piece of gear and you should never ever have one. We've both carried them off and on for, well, predominantly on for, yeah, yeah, forever, right? They do have a purpose. What we're trying to get across is it's not... It's not the one-stop shop fix for hypothermia. It's just another piece that you can use, right? So we just don't want people to start thinking that, hey, this is, this is the best thing you can ever have and just go out with it. Now, that anyway. said, if SOL wants to reach out and sponsor us, I'm happy to have that conversation. They do make some great products, but they do. we're not promoting one brand over the other, right? I will wrap all of my patients in your stuff as a cape. Absolutely. Uh, no, we're not. We're not. I just happen to know that's the brand Mike's referring to. And they do. They make some good kit. There are some other, we'll call them much heavier weight space blanket type things that are great. They are marketed as reusable, marketed as emergency shelter pieces. I used to carry one in my pack all the time until one of the last patients we had. And it went away as part of their hypothermia wrap as they were evacuated up a helicopter. Yep. Um, yep. I got it replaced, but now I have a different, similar blanket in my pack. But so there are different things out there from very heavyweight to very lightweight. Pick what's most appropriate for you. Remember. For us wilderness responders, you've got to carry it. So it is what it is. I will throw one other nugget out there. This is relatively forward-leaning science. There aren't a whole lot of white papers on this yet. I'm not going to say this is the definitive answer to treating patients. But there has been quite a bit of noise lately about Palmer, or I forget the name of the the soles of your feet, solar, (laughs) (laughs) heating and cooling. And there's actually now some products on the market that they're doing studies for weightlifting that you can actually lift more and yes. exercise harder by cooling your palms in your, of your hands or the palms of your feet. There's actually been, there's, there's a couple of white papers out now. I think one was out of Utah. I can't remember, but they're finding that heating and cooling patients using the palms of the hands and the feet is far more effective than the old school thing we were taught about putting heat packs in the groin and on the neck. Um, yeah. It actually has to do, I, I won't go super deep into it, partially because I'll probably screw it up, but you actually do not, ha- you have a different type of capillary in the palms of your hands and your feet. And the, the vasculature and the, the capillary function is right next to each other. And you end up with much more effective heat transfer back to the core than the traditional like groin and neck, where you still experience a lot of shunting when you're cold. The palms of the feet and the palms of the hands do not actually shunt in the same manner. And so 
you get much better vasculature return of the heat transfer or the cool transfer from the palms of the hands and the palms of the feet. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard and uh, seen a couple of very similar things. And I think, yeah, it comes down to it's the larger available surface area yep. with viable capillaries, right? So anyway, yep. not really related to space blankets, but <laughs> no, something but else. It is related to like warming. It's very interesting discussion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. perhaps passive or active, you know, if you've got a few extra little chemical heat packs, place them in the palm of the hand or uh, the soles of their feet, you know, yeah. may or may not help. Again, I think Mike's correct that, that I don't think there's been some research in the area. There are some initial studies that have come out that said this is beneficial, but how beneficial, we don't know yet. But I don't think textbooks you know, are getting rewritten yet. Uh, no, certainly not. But, you know, medicine no. is an evolving science. So Wait, it's what? Science? Medicine is science? Science. Oh, my gosh. Hashtag science. You're a All racist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. I can't think of what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. All right. So. Well. So as we close out our, our hypothermia series, Jesus, Michael, a uh, few things, just wrap it up. I'd say not just this episode, but all of them in general, you've got to do a thorough patient assessment, just like everything else. You need to understand where your patient is and what their status is along that hypothermia curve. Are we in the early stages? Are we in that moderate stage? If they are pretty well unresponsive and down hard, you can pretty much assume they've hit severe, right? Just go with that assumption until proven otherwise. After you've done that, you need to start choosing your appropriate technique, right? And Mike and I will always advocate, be more aggressive than not. And with that, we mean, hey, if you get there and you're not quite sure yet, it's like, well, let's start implementing some of those techniques we've talked about in some of the previous episodes. Getting them energy, getting them food, helping them produce their own heat, getting them warm, getting them dry. If possible, get them out of the environment, at least initially, a little bit. There's only so much we can do in a field environment, but you got to do what you is best in the interest of your patient and is reasonable for your situation and scenario. Regardless, evacuation needs to be your priority, right? Anything beyond mild hypothermia, you just can't do enough in the field, right? There's just, you can't do enough. You can do minimal treatments. And what you're really doing is staving off the patient going into a severe or more severe state of hypothermia. So you've got to get them going. Mild hypothermia, like we've talked about in some of the previous ones, that you can work with, but they still need to be evacuated. Okay? It's, it's not like the urban ambulance where you've got your diabetic blood sugar back up to 160 and you're like, all right, man, enjoy that sandwich. We're out. Sign here. This is, they're out in that environment. They're already in a condition where they developed hypothermia once before. Chances are it's going to happen again. You need to get them evacuated. Right? We are, for all intents and purposes, we're a temporizing measure. We're just kind of trying to hold where they are and not let them get any worse until we can get them into a hospital. Or the next best thing for us, really, is getting them into the back of that heated ambulance, turn them over to another crew. Well, they've got the back of that box nice and toasty, and they can mm-hmm. get them to the hospital, right? That's really what's going to help these people. And again, as always, don't forget your basics. And Mike mentioned it in a previous episode, and it stands true now and probably well into the future. BLS before ALS in this situation is always going to be the way to go, right? Get them warm, get them dry, get them moving, and get them out of there. And really, yeah. I think that's a, come on, what else you got, Mike? Anything else? Well, I got one other nugget that came to mind while you were talking about temporizing the environment. It doesn't have to be cold out for your patient that's sitting in a Stokes, and I've talked about this so many times before, to end up hypothermic during Dude. the purpose. During the activity of evacuation, somebody can get hypothermic in 60, 70 degree weather, just laying Absolutely. in a Stokes with air Absolutely. blowing around them, right? 
So yep. this isn't just about, hey, it's cold out, I have to deal with hypothermia. Hypothermia can happen in the summer. Hypothermia can happen in a lot of places, in a lot of different environments. It is, we're probably going to do much more in-depth podcasts on this in the future, but being cold is one of the biggest contributors to people not getting well or responding well to critical care treatments. You have to get them warm for the body to be able to respond to anything else you're doing. These are critical skills for any patient you are working with at pretty much any time of the year. That is, yeah. And that's, that's one of my biggest pet peeves, I guess, when it comes to wilderness medicine. And this is something I used to preach all the time. If anybody's out there that used to come to one of my wellness first aid classes, the mantra, the ground is always cold. I don't care what <laughs> month it is. The ground is always cold. It will always suck the heat out of you. And Mike brought it up, the Stokes. If you've ever been in a hammock, right, what makes hammock camping challenging is you've got that full 360 around you where the wind is blowing and you're exposed to the envelop, the environment. In a Stokes basket, it's the exact same thing. Even if it's August in a generally hot climate, if your patient's not sweating, they're not warm enough. And once they're they start sweating enough. and say, hey, man, I'm sweating now, it's like, cool, now we can back off some layers and taper down for them. But until they tell you they're too hot, they're not. They're and not. That's just just start off with that mindset. Now, I'm not saying in August they need to be in a down sleeping bag rated for zero degrees, okay? No. Let's, let's not get too crazy. This but, is really where we care about convection and conduction much more, it, right? Oh, yeah, especially the convection piece, right? Because that's that air moving all around them, and it will yep. impact their, their comfort. And, and think about it. When they start getting cold, how they metabolize medicines, right? If you're trying to maintain a certain level of sedation or pain control, and yep. the environment is going to change how their body metabolizes some of those meds. Some you're going to have to cut down on, some you're going to have to double or triple, yep. right? It, it all depends. So yeah, Mike brought up a very good point. We started this series of hypothermia basically because it is the winter months for us here in North America. But it applies that all is, the time. But it applies all the time. Yeah, it yeah. always applies. Like, And again, June, July, August, good normal summer months. That's when that lightweight mylar space blanket might be helpful to you vice the winter months as yep. more of a, a help in some of these preventing hypothermia. Because yep, again, remember, when your patients are injured or ill, their body's ability to maintain homeostasis is diminished, right? They're, they're going to shunt and switch off certain functions in preference to other more life-supporting necessary functions. Yep. And so building body heat to shiver and make heat might get put back behind things that, say, need to perfuse the kidneys and the brain, right? Your body's going to move some things around even in those summer months. So Mike brought up a great point and I'm glad he did. So yeah, so don't just think of hypothermia as a cold weather condition. You need to be aware of it and consider it every day throughout the year for every patient you've got. Yep. Cool, I'm glad I brought that up too. Yeah. All um, right, man, uh, nothing else. Yeah, I guess that's really about it. So again, uh, if you've got any other questions on hypothermia, you can send us a note. Yeah. We'll happily deep dive into up. some other topics if we haven't covered what you'd like to hear uh, or you'd like to hear more about it. And I think that's about it. We will be moving on. We do have a, a tentative schedule or plan at least for our topics and discussions coming up in the future for uh, the next yeah. year's shows. And if you've got some ideas, send them our way. If not, you're going to start hearing some more of these, we'll call them series-like discussions where we kind yeah. of lump some of these things together and make several episodes out of them to give a, a deeper discussion on certain topics. Yeah, at the end of the day, and, if you don't tell us what you want to hear about, you're just going to hear whatever we want to talk about. So that or you can just quit listening. Yeah. But we would prefer you keep listening. We like it when people listen. So Yeah, please don't quit. Don't listen to him. <laughs> please listen. Don't quit. All right. Talk to you later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com 
or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.